You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I'd ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 13 this morning. John 13. You know, when reading any narrative part of Scripture, and especially the Gospels, it's helpful if, if we can, as best as we can, place ourselves in the shoes of the people we're reading about, to use our God-given imagination to reconstruct the scene that we're reading about with all the sights, the sound, the smells, the, the emotions of it, because the Gospels are really quite dramatic. If, if you just read it like a novel, there's, there's some really high highs and some really low lows in here. In, in the year 2020, of course, we have the privilege from our perspective of seeing the whole story. We know how it ends. We know what God was doing through Jesus and his disciples and now through his church. But put yourself in the shoes of those original 12 disciples. They're all Jewish men, some of them possibly no older than teenagers. They live their lives under the Mosaic law like any good God-fearing Jew would. But then this man, Jesus, shows up and tells them to drop everything and to follow him. And they do for nearly three years. And it's humorous thinking of the many times they would have been completely shocked and maybe even appalled at what Jesus does, at something he does or something he says. I mean, just think about John's gospel so far. He turns water into wine just maybe weeks after they began following him. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty cool trick. They're probably thinking, hey, we, we did a pretty good thing by following this guy. But then they go down to Jerusalem after that, and he's turning over tables in the temple and running out livestock, and, and he's challenging the systems they would have known their entire lives. They would have been shocked at the authority that Jesus was wielding there in the temple. Or how about the healings? Just imagine if you saw a paralyzed man with his legs shriveled from having never walked before, all of a sudden, get up, pick up his mat, and walk away. Like, what just happened? And then they saw this kind of thing many times, whether it's, whether it's paralytics or the blind and mute or lepers or anything in between. And think about Jesus commanding the winds and the waves to stop. I mean, we see quite a few storms around here. If someone just stood up and told it to stop and it went perfectly clear all of a sudden, we would say, who is this man? Who is this person who has this authority? And Jesus multiplies the bread and fish. That would have gotten me pretty excited, just an instant buffet of food without end. This guy's awesome. And then Lazarus, as we read just a few weeks ago, that, that imagine standing there with Jesus, thinking that he's gone a little crazy, telling them to open up the tomb of a man who's been dead for four days only for them to, for Jesus to say, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man gets up and comes out of the tomb on his own. And, of course, we think that's awesome when we read it. But I imagine if we were there in person, I mean, there's probably people fainting. I mean, that's terrifying power right there. And just the awe and wonder that would have been upon those who saw this. And there's really so many jaw-dropping moments in Jesus' ministry. But we're going to look at one today that may have surprised the disciples more than anything. So I'd invite you to look with me in John 13. 
And maybe if you're still turning there, I'll go ahead and give you some, some context. Here in chapter 13, we're all of a sudden at the Last Supper. Now, it, it may not say that in your Bible. John gives different details about the Last Supper than the other Gospels, but that's where we are here in John chapter 13. This is the Thursday night that Jesus will be betrayed and arrested by the end of the evening. And so this is the night before the crucifixion. This is an important occasion, and Jesus, is, his public ministry is over. He's alone with his 12 disciples, and over the course of chapters 13 through 17, he'll pour out his heart to his disciples. And so for a whole five chapters, it's focusing on several hours that Jesus spends alone with his disciples, and he's preparing them for what lies ahead. It's a preparation for his arrest and crucifixion and burial. And so I want us to feel the importance and the weight of every word Jesus says in light of what will soon happen to him and his disciples. So let's begin reading in verse 1. John 13, 1 says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but, every one of, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them. So in chapter 12, we saw some Greeks. They come seeking Jesus, asking, We would like to see the man Jesus. And it's then that Jesus declares that his hour has now come. This idea of an hour or the hour has been mentioned since John chapter 2, and it referred to the final act of Jesus' mission. That's the whole reason he came as a baby in a manger. His entire life and ministry. We're all working towards this one end. And here in verse 1, it says that he knew the hour was come for him to depart out of this world and return to the Father. He had loved his own, his followers, his true believers throughout his ministry, but his love for them was not yet complete. He'll love them to the very end. So it could also be translated, he loved them to the utmost. So two meanings here. Jesus certainly would love his his own until the very end, until actually dying for them, but then he would also love them in a way 
that was unfathomable. He would love them in the most extreme way by giving his life for theirs. And as John writes his gospel, he, more than the other gospels, he alludes to Judas multiple times, giving us a little insight into what Judas was doing all along. And he adds here that it was already in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. In fact, he says the devil put it into his heart. Now, this does not mean that Judas was just a puppet being used by the devil, that, that Satan forced himself upon Judas. That's not what's happening here. Judas is still completely responsible for his own actions, but what he's doing is basically satanic and wicked at its heart. The actions that Judas is committing are in line with the will and desires of Satan, but this is a natural byproduct of Judas's own heart. Remember a few weeks ago when we read the account of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, it says that Judas, Judas was outraged that they had wasted such expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus. But John tells us he was actually only outraged because he was secretly helping himself to the money bag on the side. And so this betrayal of Jesus is simply the fruit finally being born out of those seeds of wickedness that Judas had been planting and watering in his own heart all along. And so we have, in a way, two separate destinies intertwining here in verse 2 and 3. We have Judas, who's on a path of betrayal and destruction that will lead to Jesus's arrest. But Jesus is on a path through that arrest that will lead to his glorification. And that's the beauty of God's plan, that God can use both of these paths to intersect. Then it says, Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands. And he was soon going back to where he came from, that is, from the Father. Jesus' resurrection, glorification, and victory over sin and death were really only a few short days away from this point. He'll be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. This is his moment of glory. And you would think that this would be a great opportunity for a victory speech, for some celebrating, or at least some relaxing around this meal with his closest disciples. I mean, after all, it's been a long three years of ministry. But Jesus does what no one in the room would have expected. He begins washing the disciples' feet. And we have to picture the scene here. He takes off his outer garment like a servant would. He gathers the water basin and a towel and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And now we really have to try to understand the significance of, of this, because this isn't something we, we normally do. Um, at least we don't in my household. I don't know if you, you wash your feet before you go in the house. But this is first century Jerusalem, mostly dirt roads, not even some nicely packed gravel. This are dusty dirt roads. And of course, around the time of the Passover, there's hundreds of thousands of of people swarming into Jerusalem, lots of foot traffic, also lots of livestock being brought in to have sacrifice. And so you can imagine with all that brings, these roads probably get pretty nasty. And then on top of that, sandals were the standard footwear of the day. This is long before modern footwear. So the feet naturally are the dirtiest part of the body in first century Jerusalem. And when someone would come into a house for a meal, they would wash their feet first. And one reason is for this is because at long meals, they would often be reclining around a low table, kind of laying out with the, on one elbow with their feet angled kind of towards the person next to them. So you want to make sure your feet 
are clean and presentable. And this was a job usually reserved for the lowest servant or slave. Some Jewish writings even, even make it sound like that, that the Jews wouldn't even let a Jewish servant do this job. They would make a Gentile servant do it because it was so menial, so uh, demeaning to have to do this. And so what Jesus is doing here is actually turning this entire concept of power and authority upside down. He's dismantling the societal hierarchy of service and being served. This truly might be the most shocking event that his disciples have witnessed. And, and I understand it's hard for us to grasp this because this is so different. We don't live in a culture with such a strict, structured hierarchy and social customs that have to be observed in the strictest sense. But this was something that if other Jews saw Jesus doing this, this would ruin his reputation. This would bring shame on him. This was a task only fit for servants and slaves. It's certainly not a respected rabbi or teacher like Jesus was. No one like that would ever stoop to this level to wash anyone's feet, especially his own disciples who were supposed to be below him. And the thing is, this isn't even just a normal teacher or rabbi. Jesus is their teacher, but he's also the son of God. He is the word incarnate. He's a perfect revelation of God to man and will soon be the resurrected king. And so the disciples, they're, they're shocked. They're most likely even offended that Jesus would, would turn everything upside down and begin washing their feet. And so not surprisingly, Peter is the one who voices probably what the whole group is thinking. And he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's basically saying, what do you think you're doing? Why are you doing this? And Jesus tells him, you'll understand this later, even though you don't right now, to which Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And the language there that Peter uses is the strongest, um, really almost a rebuke of Jesus, similar to, to when, G, when Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that he will die, and, and, Peter, and Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. That's kind of what Peter's doing again, rebuking Jesus. Because he knows this isn't how things should be. This isn't normal. But Jesus simply tells him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. It's like he's saying, you have no part, you have no inheritance with anything having to do with me. Without this washing, you have no relationship with me. And so we, we don't know how much Peter understands of what he's saying, but we know Peter understands a good, a good enough amount to say, in that case, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head too. I mean, Peter says, give me a whole bath if that's what it takes to be with you. He does a complete 180. If this what, is this what's it, what it takes to have a share in your life, then give me a whole bath. And for all his brashness and impatience, Peter does truly want more than anything to be with Christ says, give me a whole bath then, not just a foot washing. And there's two aspects of this foot washing that we need to understand. Jesus washes their feet both as a symbol and as a model, as a symbol and a model. So there's two layers of meaning. Now, let's first consider the symbolism, this foot washing as a symbol. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is talking about more than just Peter's feet here. This is a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual washing that is needed that can only come through Jesus. 
We saw this first alluded to back in chapter 2 when, when Jesus is at the wedding party and they run out of wine and he uses, it says, the vessels that were set aside for ritual purification. He takes those and repurposes them. And it's no accident that John points out what those vessels were meant for and he repurposes them, kind of emphasizing that you don't need that renewal, that, that ritual water anymore because I'm bringing a purification and a greater uh, a greater washing and cleansing than you previously had. And this cleansing ultimately comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament is a billboard for this. If you read through it, through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and, and really all the rest, you'll see there's a lot of blood in the Old Testament. It is a bloody book. All the vessels in the tabernacle were, had to be purified with blood being sprinkled on them the blood of innocent animals. The people had to continually have their sins purified by the shedding of blood of innocent animals again and again and again. And according to the law, there was no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Something has to die to atone for sin, but those animals couldn't provide permanent atonement. That's why Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then in Revelation 7, 14, the apostle John, he sees these people in white robes. And he's told that those are the saints who have washed their robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. And it may not make sense to wash something in blood and it end up being white, but it's showing that the blood of Jesus perfectly cleanses us from sin, leaving us white and pure. And so as Jesus is washing their feet, he's giving just a little glimpse and a hint of the complete spiritual cleansing he will make possible on the cross when his followers won't be merely washed with water, but washed with the blood of Jesus. And maybe Peter understands just a little bit of this. So, of course, he wants the full thing. Give me a bath. But his enthusiasm is slightly misplaced because Jesus tells him, you don't need a bath. You're already clean. You just need your feet washed. So what's he saying here? He says, Peter, you are clean. Pastor John MacArthur points out that this is Jesus basically saying, Peter, you are saved. So how incredible would that be? Even though I, I don't really struggle with, with you know, being saved or thinking I'm saved, how awesome would it be for Jesus to look me in the face and say, you are saved? It would be such an incredible moment. And he says, you're clean. You just need your feet washed. In other words, for these disciples, they, they are believers. They have believed. They've been washed clean by Jesus. They have no need for a radical new cleansing ever again. It's coming through Jesus, but they do need continual daily cleansing from the contamination of sin. And that's true for us who are saved today. We've clearly seen in John the truth of eternal security. You're saved once and for all. Jesus doesn't lose any sheep, but we still wrestle with the temptation of sins every single day. We still battle for the spirit to control our lives rather than the flesh. And daily we need God to wash us anew with his gracious forgiveness. And we do this not in order to be saved, but to become more like Christ, to be transformed more and more into the image 
of the Son to pursue holiness and godliness out of a love for our Savior. So Peter, you are clean, but he says, but not every one of you. And Jesus is speaking of Judas. He's saying Judas isn't clean. Judas is not and was not ever saved. He may have been around Jesus' sheep. He may have acted like one and talked like one a lot. But in the end, it was exposed that he wasn't one of the sheep. We see Jesus in other teachings talk about there will be a sorting of the goats from the sheep. Judas is not a sheep. He was still dead in the filth of his wickedness. And, and I want to ask you today, are you clean? Have you been washed clean from your sins? And if not, make today that day. There's only one way through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this foot washing is a symbol, but it's also a model. After Jesus finishes washing in their feet, he gets situated again and and seated at the table, and he wants to know if they understand why he did this. And he reveals that it was to set an example, to set a model. If he, the teacher and Lord, would stoop to that level to serve them, then there's really no level that they shouldn't be willing to lower themselves to to serve one another. And there's no surprise that Jesus had to kind of shock this into their system with this kind of illustration. There's multiple times in the Gospels where we find the disciples arguing with one another, debating who is the greatest in heaven, or who is the greatest even among them, arguing among themselves, even even up to the third year that they're following Jesus. They're still arguing who's going to be the greatest. They're missing the point still about how serving and authority works in God's kingdom. They even asked Jesus at one point, who's the greatest in heaven? So even this ragtag group of disciples have the tendency to always want to be the one being served rather than the one serving. But this example by Jesus completely destroys their concepts of power and respect and service. And his service to them is not even yet complete. He has served them by washing their feet But the next morning, he'll serve them by dying on the cross. Not only did he perform the menial task of foot washing, but he'll experience the extreme humiliation and shame that is unique to the cross. Hanging there half naked with nails through his hands and feet, with a crown of thorns pressed into his head, hanging between two criminals with the hateful eyes of the Jews upon him, seeing the agony of of his mother and disciples watching him die on the cross. You see, he served us in the greatest way possible. The king of glory died for you and me. And that's what Paul seizes upon in Philippians 2.3, imploring the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Jesus adds in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. The master sets the standard. And if the master is willing to serve the students, then the students should be willing to serve. They aren't greater than the master. 
And Jesus is drawing a very clear line of challenge to his disciples. If the Lord of glory will wash your feet, then there's no act of service in the entire world that is above you, that you are too good to do as a follower of Jesus. And don't miss the fact, too, that Jesus has washed the feet of all 12 disciples. What does that mean? He has washed the feet of Judas. Jesus Christ washed the filthy feet of the man who would betray him by the end of the night. He washed the feet of the man who would walk with him for three years, only to end up betraying him for a bag of silver. And what humility and meekness we see there by Jesus. And so in light of that, how can we ever think that even for a moment that we are better than someone else, that we deserve to be served by someone else for any reason? The humility of Jesus highlights the wickedness of of sins like racism, to think that someone is less deserving of your kindness and your time and your money and your friendship because of the color of their skin or ethnicity. It highlights the vileness of any kind of spiritual partiality or sinful partiality, looking down on someone or thinking less of them because of their level of education or their economic status, their gender, the clothes they wear, the, the area they live in, the political party they're affiliated with. You see racism, sexism, classism, any of the isms, they aren't wrong because society says they're wrong. They're wrong because it's in complete opposition to the character and heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm not surprised to see those things rampant in our country, in our culture, in a, in a rapidly secularized world. It's, it's the natural fruit of sin. But what grieves me the most is to see so many of these same things coming from churches and from people who profess to be believers. When Jesus tells his followers to be salt and light in the world, it's because they look different. They can't be light in the darkness if they look much more like the darkness. They can't be salt in the world if they taste too much like the world. This is an area where Christians have the opportunity to light up the darkness. In a world that operates on survival of the fittest and the race to get to the top, Christians can stand out in stark contrast when we selflessly love others. And I'm thankful to be in a church when we have so many brothers and sisters that are, are perfect examples of serving like Jesus served. But I want to exhort us and challenge us to follow the model of our Savior and serve those around us like never before. I want us to be a church that more than ever is known in our community as a group of people that just serve like crazy, serve so much that they're just kind of weird because they serve so selflessly. And we do it without any expectation of getting anything in return, without any hope of any recognition or praise. We do it to show the love of Jesus to the world around us. And we do it ultimately to one day hear those precious words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. You know, the purpose of John's gospel, as we've read, is, is that we would read his account and see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But we not only get that evidence, we also get glimpses into the character and heart of the Son of God. And here we see that he's like no other man. He's one with God, yet willing to wash his disciples' feet. He's equal with God the Father, Yet he'll serve and love his disciples to the very end, to the point of giving his perfect life on the cross in exchange for their freedom from sin. 
And he did that for his own, for those who belong to him. And if you're a Christian this morning, that includes you as well. That Jesus has served you in the greatest way possible. He's cleansed us through the shedding of his blood. And now may we live lives that reflect that love and forgiveness that we've received. Would you join me in praying?